Hello, and welcome to Appreciating Real Estate, a production of The Ohio State University Center for Real Estate. I'm Mary Beth McCormick. Today, I'm speaking with Jacques Gordon. Jacques Gordon is Global Strategist for LaSalle Investment Management. Hi, Jacques. Thanks for joining me today. So glad to be here, Mary Beth. Um, looking forward to our conversation. It's always great talking with you. You know, I, we've known each other a very long time, and I've always thought that you have one of the very coolest jobs in the industry. I mean, you're a global strategist, but you see everything. You have a, a real knack, I think, for, for deciphering global trends, but also understanding the fundamentals and getting in the weeds if you have to. That's from my seat, that's what I see. Can you tell us what you actually do? <laughs> Well, that's actually pretty good. That's pretty accurate um, in that um, I uh, am one of the people privileged uh, at my company to be invited to all the investment committees, all the portfolio reviews, all the transaction decisions, and help lead um, what we call the house view process, which is exactly what you just said, is trying to identify the trends before they're priced and to be able to develop a um, uh, uh, really a, a common uh, pattern of risk and return language at the firm so that we can all get on the same page as we're buying and selling and managing real estate. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's very much a fun job. And as, as we talk further, I'm sure some students will go, boy, I would never want a job like that. All he does is, is, <laughs> is research and talk. And others will, will, I'm sure, say, "Well, that sounds pretty cool. How do you, how do you, how do you get a job like that?" So, um, I think the way I put it, Mary Beth, is that um, in the world of real estate, they're they're definitely your cerebral thinking, trend spotting types like me, and then there are these very driven transaction types that I work with, and I really enjoy working with those transaction types. I just don't want to be one. Well, how did you get into this? Well, yeah, I know that that um, uh, each of your guests probably has a long and winding road, and I, I think mine is um, uh, uh, starting very young to be interested in cities and urban areas because I um, uh, was moved one of five kids. Uh, my dad found a a big cheap house in um, urban uh, part of the city I grew up in. And, and he moved from the little cracker box, you know, suburban uh, house out in the suburbs into the city and raised us all. And I was like five years old and my world changed when we moved into the city. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was urban St. Louis. So not not Chicago, not Columbus, not Detroit, um, but it had a lot of those same, in the 60s now, this was a lot of the same things going on uh, with white flight and a lot of uh, civil rights uh, demonstrations and a lot of change. And I was just fascinated by all that and just, I think, loved exploring um, the 20 block neighborhood I was in. And um, probably based on all that formative experience, ended up um, picking my college uh, course of studies in economics and urban studies, and then um, picking um, my graduate work at MIT on the way that cities change and neighborhoods change, and particularly looking at 
the role of private investment in neighborhood change. So that, that in a nutshell takes me up to about the age of 25 and then getting involved with commercial real estate was um, very serendipitous. It was not anything I had planned. Uh, most of what I was interested in was housing and neighborhoods and how people decided to live where they did and how um, neighborhoods work. And I'm still interested in that. Um, and actually, as an investor, you can now invest in single family and neighborhoods again. Um, but, um, but I didn't figure that out for 30 or 40 years. So what did you plan to do with housing and neighborhoods? Did, did you have something specific in mind or was, um, was it just urban Yeah, I think life? I was idealistic. I wanted to make the world a better place. I was a child of the 60s. Um, after I got my PhD, I was working at a think tank in Washington called the Urban Institute. I was teaching at NYU and I was on kind of a, um, I don't know how else to describe it, but a policy egghead kind of career as an academic and as a policy wonk, okay? And I think the thing um, that was lucky or just by chance was one of the professors I was working with at MIT before I um, uh, finished my dissertation, you need to pay your rent, you need to pay your tuition. So this professor had um, um, gotten a grant um, to um, really study the early 70s and mid 70s um, phenomenon of, um, of uh, how else to put it, but the revitalization of urban retail that was not broad trend at all. It was very specific trend in only five or six cities. And we got a grant for, I think I remember it was like $100,000 back in 1982 to do that study. And, um, and, and the number of urban um, retail uh, regeneration stories was very few. So we interviewed Jim Rouse, uh, who um, some of you, you're, you would know, Mary Beth, many of your students may not realize was one of the pioneers in reopening things like Faneuil Hall or the Harbor Place in Baltimore and went on to do a lot of urban retail over mm -hmm. a great career um, at his company that he founded, Rouse Corporation. And then actually in a later part of his career, he founded a nonprofit that continued that. Um, interviewed Ernie Hahn, uh, another uh, real estate developer who did suburban giant regional malls, and he did one in San Diego called Horton Plaza. Mm -hmm. And there were, as I say, back in 1982, 83, there were only like five or six of these, and it was easy to identify. And I think um, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, others were interested in trying to reverse this out-migration of Americans to the suburbs with all this uh, decrepit, um, uh, you know, both older buildings and real estate left behind, what could you do with it? So um, cities like Boston, Cleveland, St. Louis, where I grew up, were each trying to attract private investment. There wasn't federal money for this. And interviewing these entrepreneurs who were making it work was just so fascinating to me that um, I realized I didn't want to just spend my life in the classroom. I wanted to, to get a front row seat to what these guys were doing. And, um, uh, and, and then from there, worked for a market research firm that still exists today, uh, founded by one of my heroes, uh, Tony Downs, um, who wrote, wrote a lot of books for ULI and is a brilliant mind. 
he founded a firm called Real Estate Research Corporation that actually did the market work and market research that helped each of these developers figure out um, what cities to invest in and what neighborhoods and how to, how to do it. And working at RERC in the um, uh, 85 to 1990 timeframe was really my opening uh, of my door out of academia and into the stepping into the uh, Alice in Wonderland world of, of real estate folks. And I've never left. That's great. You know, I think I met you around then, maybe at NACREF, right? Maybe late 80s, early 90s when NACREF was just getting started. And I always, I, I tell my students this, I, you know, if, if you go to a big meeting, look for the smartest person in the room and sit next to them because they're, they're always the nicest because they don't have anything to prove. And so you may remember, but I, I plop into the seat next to you a few times and chat with you. And I always learn so much. And what I love is you are always, you still are, you still have this enthusiasm and curiosity about the world and you, whatever you're talking about, even when it's not necessarily good news, you, you can be upbeat about it. How do you manage that? How are you not jaded after 30, 30 some years, right? In the business. You've seen all know. of this before. <laughs> That's a very philosophical question. I'm not very good at being introspective, so I'm not sure why I have that trait. But it did, does go back to that thing as we, I mentioned earlier on, which um, probably at every organization, there's a lot of doers, uh, particularly in the world of business, where you're doing busy, busy, busy. And I think it's helpful for many organizations to have somebody who is um, a connector, uh, somebody who can um, uh, break down silos, listen, learn, and then share. And those are useful traits. And those are the traits I, uh, I um, uh, enjoy working on. Like I said, I, I've had my share of, of deal flow experience, um, being up late, uh, working spreadsheets. Uh, I did that enough at, um, uh, at both Real Estate Research Corporation and in my early days in the business to know that that's, that takes intense uh, focus. Um, you're working, you and your spreadsheet, you're not working with other people. I'm a people person. So I guess it really just suited my personality, to be honest, to be in this um, research role where you're basically helping uh, people at your organization and your clients learn about what each other are doing. Um, and I'm just the guy in the middle. I'm the clearinghouse for it. And I'll take a good idea that I'm hearing about from, say, the team in London uh, or the team in Tokyo. In fact, a good example is the team in Tokyo started doing cold storage um, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And I kept asking, well, why aren't we doing cold storage in other countries? Is it just Japan that, 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 that needs... Um, refrigerated, either cold or wet or dry, uh, cold storage space. And, and then people started calling our guys in Japan. Well, how does this work? And who owns the chiller? And who, who's responsible if you lose electricity and suddenly an entire warehouse filled with broccoli or frozen chicken gets thawed out? What, what's the legal remedy? And so, you know, I didn't invent any of this. I just put people in touch with each other and was really able to use my skills as a, a listener, observer, and connector to help us be better investors. To what extent do you think you've 
molded your job around your strengths and what you enjoy the most? Oh, very much. Um, you know, the, um, the way that um, uh, <laughs> research as a discipline uh, grew up, and Mary Beth, you'll remember this, was kind of a weird thing that real estate realized it was making a ton of very basic uh, mistakes in the 80s. And, yep. and really what it was is that researchers were brought in to kind of clean all that up and to get, um, get the, particularly the development side of our business, uh, paying attention to supply and demand. I mean, just this seems so obvious now, but back uh, in the 80s, particularly real estate was, was heavily driven and this is different in different countries, but in the US it was driven heavily by, um, by tax regulations and people weren't building for, they weren't paying attention to supply and demand. They were paying attention to, to depreciation depreciation allowances, tax losses, mm -hmm. and it totally screwed up our industry. Add to that that the deregulation of financial institutions like savings and loans <laughs> made, made just total chaos in the 80s. So someone who had just basic economics training, as silly as it sounds, being able to count supply, count demand, make sure that there were people were paying attention to the market, whether it was the space markets of supply and demand and rent, or the capital markets, which are uh, very much also supply and demand, but of a different kind, debt, equity, cap rate, um, what alternative asset classes are pricing at. Um, someone who had, had uh, basic training in all that um, was not only valuable to the investment management industry that I worked in, but also was, um, was very much part of what I think firms were doing to kind of correct uh, their mistakes and, and almost in a marketing way, let their investors know, hey, we got a, we got a research guy and this <laughs> research person is going to you know, help, us, help us not make stupid mistakes and, and so forth. And so we were shoved out in front of uh, groups like the Ohio pension plans mm -hmm. and, the, and the state of California and the state of New York pension plans. Hey, we got a research guy. And so what, what happened in, in, in all of our cases, and they're like, I don't know, maybe a dozen of us who were in that role, Mary Beth, each one of us did it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Some really liked being like the professor, the educator. Oh, I will lecture you on why real estate should be in a portfolio. I can think of a, a couple of my colleagues who were really good at that. Mm -hmm. And they would convince boards and pension plans why they should allocate not just 2% or 3% to real estate, but look at this, this, uh, this model I have that shows you should be 10 or 15% in real estate. So they were kind of on the marketing, more the marketing side of research to helping explain real estate, not marketing in a bad way, but educating particularly pension plans and institutions on what real estate would do for you in a portfolio. Um, that wasn't me so much, <laughs> but that was one type of, of research. The kind of research I really enjoyed was micro and it was um, like, like we said earlier in the conversation, going um, into the details of how a city worked, uh, where, how location worked, how transportation networks worked, where the money was in the city, where the corporations wanted to be, where the labor was. Um, and that was, that was always my great interest. And so um, I ended up working probably a little differently than other researchers, very heavily trying to make sure that the research functions that I was associated with were integrated into the investment process. 
and not all of them were, but but I, I was very heavily involved in um, making sure that our research group um, at LaSalle was part of every decision we made. Not every research group is set up that way, by the way. Some are more thematic and saying, um, you know, just, you know, buy logistics, go, go buy warehouses, and then get out of the way and let us transaction people do, do the rest of it. Uh, we're more uh, integrated. We're, we're trying to say not just buy logistics, but where do you buy logistics and what price should you pay for logistics and, and for a warehouse um, in, in Southern California, should it be in LA County or Inland Empire and San Diego County, where should it be? And what does the supply demand look like? So, so there are different styles of research used in investment management. The style that I've pursued sort of, I, I guess really followed my, my interests in, in how cities work. So you're describing a very cooperative process between research and transactions, but which, is there a chicken and an egg? I mean, does, do you come up with a great idea and say, hey, cold storage, you, you got, go look for sto cold storage, or do they come to you and say, where is their opportunity? Where is their risk? How does it work? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very iterative. And that example I gave was really not an idea we had, but something our Tokyo teams were doing. And then our Korean teams were imitating them. And so we were bringing, our research group was trying to bring over what we were learning from them over to Europe and North America. So um, I think a, a good, a good um, probably true of anyone in business, not just someone with the title research or strategy, is to be able to learn from one division or one part of your company and see what might apply to another part. Um, because business is so, um, back from the days of Henry Ford, it's, it's so division of labor is the way most organizations are, are, are set up. And so there's silos that are there for a reason for productivity and focus and a whole lot of other good reasons. But to have someone who, um, uh, can go across the silos and say, what are you working on? And, and how does it work? And have you thought about doing this or that? Um, if it's not done in an annoying uh, kind of preachy way, um, is often uh, in an organization like ours really welcomed. And mm -hmm. so how does it work? It's like uh, no pride of authorship, not a lot of ego, not like, oh, I invented this, or here's my model that will tell you how to invest successfully. It's trying to find out uh, what's working and why, and then spread the word on that. Um, and uh, really, the the way the way I think of it, Mary Beth, is that 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 that's really a skill more business people really should have, more investors should have. The smartest investors I've ever met, um, and they're not just from real estate, but from private equity, or a guy like Howard Marks, or Warren Buffett, or Charlie Munger. You hear these people talk, or even. Way back, Peter Lynch, you remember him? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. I, I, probably so when your students don't know, but one of the original sort of fundamental investors is to always be listening and always be aware and try to figure out um, if you couldn't really summarize the investment thesis in a couple of sentences, if it took a whole lot of caveats and explaining, it probably meant that there was complexity there that you either uh, should avoid or you've got to price it and it's got to have some countervailing uh, pricing advantage because you're, you're, you're in a world that you can't simply and, and cleanly explain to somebody, it means there's a problem. There's, there's some, some fundamental problem to it. Um, and that was really uh, the Peter Lynch idea that you needed to be able to um, collapse your investment thesis down 
uh, not from a complicated 20 page paper, but from something that that really anyone could understand in what we now call an elevator pitch. But back mm -hmm. then it was just called an investment thesis. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess those are those are um, all the kinds of activities I do. The skills I have are very much on um, uh, conceptualization, uh, sometimes called ideation, communication, taking taking what I've heard uh, from somewhere else and applying it to something new. Um, and a lot of people um, really in their, in their business school training uh, uh, forget that they had that have those skills. They had them almost by definition, they had them in uh, probably ninth or 10th or 11th grade when they went from English to math to, to history to you know, down the hall to, to art class or whatever, or music. They, 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 that was what their day was like. And then we go to business school and then we get into our career rut and then we go, I'm an X. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a specialist in Xs. That's mm -hmm. what I do is X. And then they forget about all the cool uh, Ys and Zs and As and Bs that got them to, to be an X expert. <laughs> and so um, really what I try to do is, is get everybody in my group to, to have that wide ranging interest. I look, look really in my group for, for people who, like to read, like to travel, like to understand outside of their silo. Now, an entire organization of people like me would, would be crazy. It would drive, drive most CEOs crazy. Um, but, but to have a few of us uh, makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So I know you, you, your kids are grown and gone, but when you look back at them when they were five or eight or 10, you probably saw things, traits then that have led to their success today. You know, um, that's one of the great things about being a parent is, is you know, you realize that uh, you can't screw up very much because, because that child is, is who they are their whole life. So let's talk about little Jacques, who was five and moved to St. Louis. What traits did you have then that have helped you be successful? Wow, we're going back to that. I thought I covered that very, very, uh, uh, very smoothly. Uh, yeah, yeah, very. very I, smoothly. I was ready to grow up past that. But look, I'll go back to it because it is still who I am. And you, I think you, uh, these curious. podcasts are audio only. But when we yeah. first signed on to Zoom and you were looking around my office, you you saw a bike helmet. You saw a bunch of stuff on my whiteboard. And I, I think I think it it does define me and a lot of people like me, particularly the research people and maybe maybe some of the people who are more in either um, uh, 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 the, the, the part of real estate that is development oriented or vision oriented. And it's really curiosity and being curious. And so my sisters weren't this way, it was just me. Uh, my brother was not as much this way. Uh, and I went into neighborhoods I shouldn't have gone into. And um, our neighborhood was, um, uh, uh, more or less white middle class with a couple of, uh, you know, the very first African-American families in St. Louis had just moved into our street. But then two blocks over, man, it was like 100% African-American or 100% um, hippies or uh, right near the Washington University campus. There was a lot of, you know, just crazy neighborhoods with record stores and all sorts of uh, drug paraphernalia or whatever, whatever was selling in the 70s um, posters. So I just love to explore. I just spent so many, I think there were just, um, you know, 
I, I would like nothing better to do after I got my homework done or instead of doing my homework is going out on my bike and exploring neighborhoods. I still like to do that. So okay. um, where does that come from? I, I have no idea. Playing with Legos or reading, uh, reading um, adventure stories, I'm not sure. But I tell you one thing, my parents encouraged it and they were, they were cool with it, um, which was not, not true of a lot of parents on my street. I heard one of my neighborhood friends being constantly told, never leave our little private street. It was a weird thing. It was St. Louis has a bunch of these. I don't think Columbus does, but there's streets with gates on either end. It's like, you know, the gated community of the planned unit so development many. of Houston and Dallas in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the 70s and the 80s. It had a precursor in 1900 in St. Louis with, with these private streets. And so our street was uh, like that. It was uh, developed in 1900 for the World's Fair and it had these gates on either end. And I, I love nothing better than to, to, um, to get out of those gates and go see what the wide world had to offer. So um, I don't know, I think, I think there, people are attracted to real estate for all different reasons. I think if you're only attracted because you think you're gonna make money at it and money is your main driver, you'll do fine. Um, it may not be as satisfying and you may not stick with it as much. And you may see that, that investment banking or private equity or technology is actually, you know, there's even more money to be made there. But if you're intrinsically or interested in either buildings, architecture, cities, um, as, as a lot of us are in real estate, you're gonna stick with it and your creativity and if you know something about technology and you bring it to real estate, you're going to do really, really well because we need a lot of technology. Mm -hmm. So I guess what 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 um, uh, I'm saying is that the young young Jacques was curious. The young Jacques was interested in buildings and neighborhoods, and I still am. And I would still say that I found a job that that lets me do that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and you get to travel the world. Yeah, I mean, you take you take you take that U.S. story of. St. Louis or Columbus, or I lived in Brooklyn, I've lived in London, I've lived in a lot of different American cities, but I'm always very interested to go to another country and go, well, how does it work here and why? What's your favorite town in the world? <laughs> I think, you know what it is when you're, when you're a roamer like me, you're reluctant to like put all your, it's like, it's like when they ask you, what's your desert island disc? Like, what is your um, one song? And I go, just by definition, if you made me listen to any song I love again and again, it's my only thing on my playlist, I'm going to end up hating that song. I think it's the same way with me in cities. You tell me I can only live in one city. I'm not going to want it. I'm not going to be very happy. I'm going to want to travel, um, you know, for two years uh, under COVID. I wasn't traveling. I'm very happy. Just got back from California. Mm -hmm. um, was in um, Florida just the week before that. International travel is just opening up again. I'm looking forward to going to Copenhagen in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I guess my favorite thing is movement, uh, Mary Beth. And then if you push me beyond that, I go, I don't have one. I have a whole bunch of favorite cities. I love Copenhagen. It's so cool the way bikes are um, very similar to Amsterdam. Bicycling mm -hmm. is just a natural way of getting around the city. And every person, every Danish person in Copenhagen has a bike, very similar to Amsterdam, but it's even better in Copenhagen because instead of the chaos of all the uh, cars and bikes in Amsterdam, they have dedicated bike lanes to Copenhagen and, um, and the real estate is all integrated with it. So that is, 
but it's not my only favorite city. <laughs> it's one of a long, long list. Okay. Yeah. You know, to me, that's one of the, my favorite parts of the job is, is I, I love to travel. I love to see how they do things differently. And it could be Buffalo, New York or Rome or Dublin, you, you know, but there's each place is fascinating. And Dublin, Ohio, Rome, New York, or, uh, or <laughs> Oh, Ireland no, no. So there's and, this and other place. Italy. <laughs> it's in Italy. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I really did miss Italy there for a couple of years. I haven't been back yet, but um, I'm eager to get back. When you're in a different country, a different city, and you have a job to do, it's such a great way to get to know the people, the property rights, the leases, the buildings. You learn a lot and you see things that, that, just tourists don't see. And um, it, it is a really great way to get to know a country. Um, I've gotten to know Japan that way. I've been there so many times and our teams um, that, that really do the deals are all, uh, of course, 90% um, of them were born and raised in Japan and mm -hmm. fluent. Mm -hmm. And they love explaining how things work in Japan to a foreigner. And I love to learn and ask questions. Yeah. So when I'm on a property tour, it's just like, I wear the people out sometimes. I remember this one guy, um, he, he was assigned to, to, you know, not only show me a bunch of shopping centers, but he had to squire me around on a, we, we were up in Sapporo and uh, uh, we were doing an outlet center up there. And um, he got the, and then all the senior deal guys went back to Tokyo and he was assigned to keep track of me for the weekend to go skiing. And his English was pretty good, um, but it, it takes a lot to be to be a host to an American who asked a ton of questions. And, uh, yeah. he, he and I still run into each other for a while. I still see him in the industry. And we always laugh about how exhausted he was just having to go skiing with me <laughs> and trying to figure out what, why does it work differently here? Like, what is, what is, I understand why they, um, the mountains here are different. So you're not in, you're not in, um, uh, you're on the lift, basically, on a, at Sapporo, even the best mountains, you're on the lift a lot because the runs are short and beautiful, but you're, you're like a run is seven minutes long, and then you're on the, the lift again for another 10 minutes to get to the top. So you basically have a lot of time to, to socialize and chat, and that's the Japanese, you, you see them all doing it. Yeah. And um, so it's just that kind of weird thing where you're, you're, you're trying to figure out how does it work? Like, how does this tea ceremony thing actually work? Mm -hmm. Or why is it that you have the right to raise rents to market every two years in Tokyo, but the tradition is you don't. The tradition is you, you, you sit down with your tenant and you have sake and drink and respect each other. And you don't push the pedal to the metal and get as much rent as you can out of them because you know there's a relationship there. And because they can leave every two years, you talk about it and you ask them how their business is and how's their mom and how's their dad and how's yeah. their aunt. And you're finding out all this stuff about your tenant that when did you ever see an American landlord sit down with a tenant for a meal and do that and find out everything there was to find out and not to push the rent to the max? Well, it, it, it's just a different approach, yeah. right? And, yeah. and it does work because um, in pushing the rent to the max and not finding out about the tenants, you may lose them. Mm -hmm. they're going, well, wow, you're just a gaijin, you know, money hungry capitalist. You don't care about me. And so when I get a break in my lease, I'm out of here. 
Yeah. Uh, but if you do uh, pay attention, do things the traditional way, you'll also you'll also make um, uh, make a very good impression on on a on a traditional Japanese tenant. The other thing that we learned this in in all different countries. I don't know why I'm I'm starting with Japan, but I know it so well. Is that the tenants will say, um, I was in New York, I was in LA, the buildings were clean, the buildings were beautiful. There was someone in the lobby at the concierge who helped my, my visitors to my company find their way. Why can't we have that? And we say, well, gosh, of course you can have that. We, we didn't know you wanted that, or we could have guessed it, but no one else here is doing that. And so some of the Western ways of running a building um, in Tokyo, they haven't done very well with their, with their amenities and their cleanliness of the, I, I'm, cleanliness isn't the right word. You know what it is? It's, it's like attention to detail of how you run a class A office building. Mm -hmm. Now they do it. But 20 years ago, um, it was rare. There were just a few companies that did it. Uh, Mr. Mori, who's one of the more famous developers in Japan, mm -hmm. was one of the first to figure out that, yeah, Japanese tenants would pay more for, um, for uh, a good concierge at the uh, welcoming you into your office every morning or uh, mm -hmm. making sure that, that other services were available to you. Um, now it's very standard. But when we first started in investing in Japan 20 years ago, uh, great property management was not valued. So it's really interesting how different cultures learn from each other or borrow from each other, perhaps. Um, and, and you talked about ways that um, your clients have learned from people in Japan with cold storage and so forth. So yeah, that's one of the things I love. It's just, it's all about the relationships and then the cross-fertilization happens. Yeah, I think that the other piece that we haven't talked about that is big in my world, and I think a lot of your students would know this because your problem sets probably make them do it, is that um, interviewing people, relationships, yes, very important. Um, the other thing that's hugely important in real estate is doing everything by gut as opposed to doing actual research, getting actual data, getting actual comp, comps, either rent comps or deal comps. Um, that's really important. And uh, oh, um, real estate- wait, wait. I want to make sure I got that. You just said ignore the research and do stuff by gut. Is that what I heard? Well, <laughs> what, I, what I'm saying is that 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 a lot of um, uh, people who love architecture and buildings and cities might forget that um, that they can't just go on their gut, okay. and that they need to have a data component to it as well. So so organizing the data, you don't have to call it a research department. You can just be a single. Uh, analyst at your new job trying to figure this out, but you need data. That's where I was going with that. Um, and oh. yes, you do need it. And okay. you can't just follow your gut. Darn. And by the way, when you're a, a, a new, newly minted Buckeye MBA, you don't even, you're, you don't have a gut. You're, you're ripped. You're like, you've got, <laughs> you've got no gut to speak of because you don't have a lot of, you don't have a lot of experience. So, yeah. so, um, so you need data. And, and that's, that's really the, Thing when I started in the business, um, that that real estate research was not a not a thing. You didn't do it because uh, there wasn't the data. Uh, you didn't know where to find the data, and so decisions were being made by gut instinct, and that could 
that could really backfire. It could certainly yeah. uh, and it did. produce, yeah. it could produce great, great real estate at times, but it could also uh, lead to a lot of financial disasters. So your early career is where you develop your gut, your instinct, and you learn whose data to trust and who's not to, right? Because there's a ton of research, a ton of noise in this industry. I mean, yours, I always look forward to when you send yours out because it's um, because there's always a human element to it that makes sense. And it's, and it seems very logical, you know, easy to follow A to B to C, whereas others are maybe just graphs, charts and graphs. But how important, you know, you, you develop that gut in the first few years. So what advice do you have for our students who are maybe looking for their first job or they're going to be starting their first job in a year or so? What should they look for? Well, it's, you know, um, uh, often the case that you don't realize you're learning as you learn. And so particularly this is true of first jobs and having um, both taught at Kellogg for six or seven years um, uh, in an in a, in a MBA setting. And I think undergraduates are, are even more so this way. You don't know what you don't know. And you don't really realize when you're learning. You don't realize when you're listening to a, uh, a meeting or looking, reading a deal book, you're, you're actually learning a ton that you, you, you're not even necessarily aware of. And okay. um, so I think what happens, you say, yeah, you don't, you don't have an instinct yet for what works or what doesn't. And that's good. That's what we all you know, could actually use more of is to, um, when you read uh, Malcolm Gladwell and uh, uh, Blink and others, you realize when you say instinct, really what you're doing is you're, you're using your brain to uh, um, uh, go multi-dimensional over time and space and take all your accumulated experience and try to say, well, how does this decision I'm making now relate to everything else in my brain? And that's a perfectly legitimate, great way to make decisions. Uh, and that's, that's really you know, the thesis of a lot of, a lot of cognitive theory about how, how our brains work. Mm -hmm. The thing that a good researcher does is try to realize that a lot of that, um, that experience is actually uh, uh, giving you um, uh, blinders. It's often shutting you out to a new idea. It's giving you um, a lot of uh, maybe false signals or relying on history as opposed to what the current and future situation will be. Uh, so one of the ways I like to describe it is really that uh, when, you're, when, you're, when you're trying to work with data, you're leaving yourself open to be surprised. And you may have a thesis, you may have a history that you're trying to prove or a point you're trying to make, but you let the data speak to you. And, and whether it's like, why is it that um, uh, we are having uh, record um, construction of um, uh, apartment buildings and uh, uh, warehouses right now, but we're also having record rent growth in both of those two property types. It's not coincidence. Those two things are not going to keep going forever. And if you take a more data-driven approach to it, you won't just be living in the here and now, I need to quickly get money and build the next warehouse because look at the rent over the last 12 months, it went up 20%. It's gonna do that again and I need to hurry up and get going before, before it goes away. Well, 
if you have data and you can kind of now analyze how long this 20% rent growth thing will keep going, and you have an idea of what's going on in the economy right now, the cost of steel, the cost of concrete, the cost of labor, and you have some economic theories in your head about how supply will or won't keep building when, when you have record inflation at the same time of record uh, increases in, in rent, you actually can be su surprised to come up with some counterintuitive ideas that aren't just coming from your gut or your instinct or your accumulated experience. So that higher level of thinking, that higher level of analysis, um, I think is actually something that business schools are great at. A good teaching case um, you know, may actually lead you down the wrong path uh, kind of intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and when you, you, you actually do the case in a way that that uses not only the data in the case, but often a good business school student, just as a good deal person, should look beyond just the case and say, well, what else do I know? Or what else can I Google and find that may help me figure out whether or not the go, no-go decision that this case is setting up uh, uh, would, 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 would lead me to, 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 to make a decision. Um, so much in, in, in real estate is, is um, uh, a series of very large binary decisions, buy or bid, mm -hmm. lease or sell, mm -hmm. with huge million dollar price tags around each of those decisions. And um, what I think you, 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 you really do with uh, very different than say a consumer product or, or lots of different other businesses where you're making more smaller decisions one after another, with real estate, we make very big decisions occasionally, and we got to be ready for them. And by ready for them, you want to have good analysts, good researchers, and good deal people all working together to get ready for that big $100 million, $1 billion bid that you're, you're putting in to, to go buy something or to sell something. So um, you can't get by on your gut when you're, mm -hmm. you're doing that. Um, that billion dollar decision needs a good engineer on the structural, it needs a good economist on the supply and demand, it needs a really good uh, uh, financial person on the model, and no one human being can put all that in their head at once. I just, I'm not right. seeing it. Right. So we're talking about execution, we're also talking about risk. How, how do you define risk these days? Where, where do you see risk? Well, um, the, and, the, and, and, and also while I have you, are you bullish or bearish? On... <laughs> wow, these questions are getting real big. We can go back to eight-year-old Jacques. I was more comfortable with those. <laughs> Look, the, the, uh, uh, the way that finance and economists people like to talk about risk is they like to talk about it as both upside and downside risk. And it's really um, you know, best understood as measurable as opposed to uncertainty, uh, which is really unmeasurable, and risk should be measurable, and risk should be um, a, a stochastic idea, which just means random, around um, a kind of a base case. And the idea of risk is really just like a, you know, I guess the students won't see me doing this with my hands, but really realizing there's a cone of possibilities around any forecast. And that cone can be very wide, and that cone can be very narrow. And what you're doing with these concepts here, Mary Beth, is saying um, uh, when 
when things are very wide, they aren't just downside ride, uh, downside wide, sorry. Uh, there's, there's just a lot of uh, noise in the system and I've got to figure out whether the, the downside risk and the upside risk are relatively in balance or not. Is it skewed one way or the other? And, and what are the uncertainties or the things I can't measure? When, when I say you're trying to measure risk, what you're trying to do is, um, you know, the easiest way that, that in a lot, of, a lot of cases they do it is what's your downside, what's your upside? The way someone trained in economics or, or statistics would do is what's one standard deviation above or below your mean forecast? And where are you getting get, you get your data to know your standard deviation? Well, you're going to look at the past. You're also going to maybe use some modeling. A good example now is there's a lot of structural change in the world and consumers, how we shop, just using the history of retail and shopping centers for how we shop, how stupid would that be with the growth of e-commerce? So you don't wanna just look at your history or time series. You also wanna uh, use, use what you know about what's, what's changing. But all of this, um, I think would be summarized as, as risk analysis. So what you wanna do with this concept of risk is say, it's not anything to, it's not something to be avoided. It's not something to be rejected. It's something to be embraced. You want to price it. You want to analyze it. And there's no such thing as a risk-free investment in any asset class, um, including cash, including bonds, and especially in real estate, there's a lot of risk. And so what you want to do is analyze the risk and figure out which risks are worth taking, which ones aren't, and where you're getting paid for it. Do I see risk right now? Yes, there's a lot of it. Um, the big one, as we're speaking in, in, in April of 2022, is rising inflation, rising interest rates. Uh, but of course, it's not doesn't just stop there. It's, it's well, what's causing that rising inflation, rising interest rates? Is it permanent? Is it temporary? And by the way, to the geopolitical environment in Eastern Europe, or the changing geopolitical axis of power between China, US, in Europe, uh, does that affect um, the way in which uh, 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 all these macro drivers like interest rates and inflation, supply and demand will interact? Uh, we've, we haven't had a shooting war like we're having right now in since 1945. So what, what, what do we make of that? So I think the, the, the thought I had is that, that each time when you're analyzing risk, it feels like really scary. I've never seen this before. How do I analyze this? How do I make a decision in my investment committee? But you think back over our careers, Mary Beth, it's always felt like that. There's always something awesomely scary out there going on. I remember you speaking. Uh, we were just talking about this when I saw you in LA. I remember you speaking about what it felt like to be back together during the other lockdown after 9-11. Yeah. And we're, how did that feel? We didn't know. We thought maybe the U.S. was going to be at war. A war on terror had been just announced. And we thought that was our biggest thing to worry about. And, you know, it didn't turn out to be that way, right? Yeah. But we were Thank all God. worried about it in November of, of yeah. 2001 when we were all at, in, in the Beverly Hills Hilton. October. It was early October. October, yes. Right away, yeah, yeah. I was, it, it, I got to tell you, I remember that so clearly. Um, 
you know, because Priya lost some people and there were a few people that had not been accounted for yet, but everybody getting together in the room just um, validated for me just how important this, this world is for me, you know, this career and these relationships. It, it took guts for people to, uh, for you to leave your family and fly from Chicago to LA right after that. That was, that was something. So talk about the risk premium a minute. Are we getting paid today, do you think, for the risk that's there? Well, I think we are, but not everywhere. And this is really the job of a strategist is to try to sort out where, uh, where you're getting paid, where you're not, where, where, where prices are fair value or where things are expensive or where you actually see attractive value. So what you end up doing in a job like mine is talking with the transactors and the asset managers a lot to get a better sense of how they're valuing real estate and take those norms and try to figure out in some methodical way what the answer to your question that you just asked me is. Like, is it good to hold on to this property? Should I be selling this property? Should I be buying more of it? And so a lot of different ways to approach that, that relative value question. That's sort of how an economist talks about it is relative mm -hmm. value. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it would be answered quite differently if you were a low risk, conservative income oriented approach uh, than if you were a um, total return, um, uh, uh, sort of shorter duration uh, value add or opportunistic approach. Right. So, so usually what you learn in my business is you start with some first principles of really saying, what is it you're trying to achieve? Are you, um, are you in an investment um, framework that says you must generate a steady dividend and pay out a good percentage of your earnings to your investment pool every quarter, every year? Or are you in this total return world? And, and if you're in that total return world, you have three, five, or seven years to work to create your wealth. And, and to not pay out a dividend, or are you somewhere in between? And you start with that, you always are a much better decision maker because you go back to those first principles. And that's really where this word strategy is so important. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is basically like any business, you're just agreeing on what your purpose is, what your objective is. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the word strategy sounds fancy, but that's really what you're doing is putting some guideposts, guardrails in place to say, I'm not gonna look at everything that hits my desk. I'm gonna focus, and I'm gonna focus based on this investment objective I, I, I put up. This thesis. So, so when you've done that, then the deals start to come through and your goal, you, you can hold up each deal against this, this framework and go, do I think this thing has a shot at hitting my objectives or not? And um, in private equity real estate, what you end up having to do is saying, I don't, I think it does at this price. So I'm going to lob in a bid at that price. And you quickly find out that the market has a very different view than you do. And you're outbid again and again, you have to recalibrate and go, well, okay, the winning bid, I know what it was, the broker told me, if I had bid that, would I be happy owning that? Or would I feel like the winner's curse had just come down on my head? Mm -hmm. The winner's curse, of course, is, is the good news is, you were the, the winning bidder <laughs> out of 50 investors. Uh, yay you. The, the, the curse is uh, 
you just paid more than everybody that anybody else thought it was worth. <laughs> and now you've got to live with your investment decision for the next five, 10 years. Right. So, so that's the way private equity real estate works. You know, listed securities works a little differently. Debt works a little differently. Mm-hmm. But once you understand all that, you understand that um, probably success in real estate is maybe 20% the strategy. If you're lucky, some people in my business like to say it's all about the strategy. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. I'd say it's maybe 20, 25% setting those objectives, steering toward where you think those best opportunities are. And the rest of it is heavily on execution, making sure your bidding, your asset management, your capital stack management, that's got much more to do with tactics than strategy. And real estate's a very hands-on asset. Mm -hmm. So yes, I guess you could say, if you just made the call in 2021 to buy warehouses and sell office buildings, and that's all you did, would you have succeeded? Yeah, you would have done pretty well. But how do you buy a bunch of office? Uh, how do you buy a bunch of warehouses in 2021? That's not so simple. Everyone else was trying to buy them. Yeah. And and you would have been if you were, you know, thinking, oh, I'll just go go, you know, meet the market. You would have been shocked because the five percent cap rate of 2019 was suddenly a three percent cap rate, and the rent growth of 2019 of three percent was now. 20%. And so, so all of that had to be worked out in your model and you calculate your IRR and you go, wow, this thing, this, this, if I bid X, I'm going to hit a 5.2% IRR. And my buy box says I need to be at 5.5. Now, what do I do? So, so this is the, the, the iterative way that real estate works. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer isn't go back and jack up all your assumptions to hit the five five, Mary. Beth. I wasn't going to say that. Well, we know people might, would do that. You might have. <laughs> I've known people would say that. What you do is you kind of say, okay, it didn't hit the five five, but did that combination of risk and return and lease and building and location? Did that? Did that? Maybe it didn't hit my hurdle of five five, but at five two, am I close enough? Mm-hmm. And and is the precision down to the decimal point really? telling me all I need to know here, that's where this idea of risk as, as a stochastic thing that has both upside and downside is helpful. And you ask, okay, if I could sell this thing in five years at the same cap rate that I just am paying, i.e. 3.2, um, you might find that you're at a six or seven or eight unlevered IRR mm-hmm. because generally, people's exit cap rates are higher than their entry cap rates Mm -hmm. for maybe good reasons, but that's just a rule of thumb. And if you think, well, if I could sell it at three, two and go in at three, two and pick up this 20% run growth. Now suddenly my IRR looks really interesting and I'm not going to count on that to happen, but I need to know that in my head as an upside. So these are just examples of how I think about risk. It's, it's really, um, almost like a God that gives and takes. It's like you, you, it, what it, it can give, give with the one hand and take with the other hand. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing a complex multidimensional problem, like trying to think about your entry yield, your exit yield, your rent growth, your tenant, tenant turnover, you've got all these puzzle pieces that you're trying to solve for. And you realize you've been overly precise at 5.2. And it really isn't 5.2. 
it's really a range between 4.5 and and 6.3. <laughs> That's yeah. really what it is. I'm, and so I... where are you in that? You're like, okay, it's somewhere in the middle there. Um, uh, but I need to know how each of these puzzle pieces may turn out a little differently over the hold. What is it that going to do to my IRR? So what I'm describing here is, is really um, very much a micro way to, to try to understand this question you're asking about where is fair value? How does risk enter into the valuation of real estate? Um, there's also very much a top-down view that says these big themes that come through societies, thing, themes like ESG, themes like um, the, the aging of the millennials out of urban hip living to their next phase of life. These large themes, where do they fit? And they also have a role to play in a top-down a portfolio strategy that really my my team takes the lead on. So um, so all of these are ways to think about this question of fair value, portfolio construction, and what you're trying to do in real estate. Some of your students are never going to have to think all that much about portfolio construction because they're going to go to work for a home builder or a developer that just does one thing and does it really well. Mm-hmm. And there the shift goes from, you know, 20% or 25% strategy and 75% execution. In those worlds, it's 99% execution because yeah. they've already decided they're going to be a self-storage owner developer. They've already yeah. decided, they don't have to think about all this other stuff, yeah. but they have to really think hard about how they execute. They might have to think really hard about how technology will make it possible for a owner of a self-storage unit to be um uh, given real-time information about, you know, here, here's a thing you you and I can probably relate to as we, we've downsized. I forgot what we put in the locker. Where's the list? I, you know, so give me the picture. I'm yeah, like 60 years old now. I'm not yeah. going to remember this darn thing I, I, I took and stuck in the locker. And people forget about that. The self-storage industry makes money off of that because they keep charging you a monthly fee. Oh, so yeah. there are all kinds of things that are out there that that um, that uh, uh, play to the the role that research and strategy play, but then also have to be executed on for you to succeed. Wow, great. Thank you. Great answer. I'm going to ask you something that is harder for me to quantify. Maybe you you've thought about how to quantify this, but at this point in your life, what does success look like to you? I'm, where I sit, you look to, to be one of the most successful people I know. You know, you're at the top of your game. Everybody knows you, admires you, and also everybody loves you. You know, you're, you're really su- very good at what you do and, um, and everybody wants to work with you. So in a relationship business, I think that's really good. So, not to put words in your mouth, but what... What would little, you know, eight-year-old Jacques say? What's successful? And and are you there? Well, the, thank or you maybe for that's your kind. Changed. Yeah, yeah, thank you for your kind <laughs> words, Mary Beth. I think I would, uh, you know, the Mutual Admiration Society. I'd say you, you're the reason why why you and I like each other is we're we're very similar <laughs> mindsets. We 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 like to learn. We we like to travel. We we you know. There, there are people out there who are not like us, and and um, if they're listening in right now, they're going, this 
this conversation is getting really annoying right now. They, <laughs> they, well, they, they, they haven't given me, they haven't given me my, my five steps to financial success <laughs> that I wanted. So, uh, and, and that that's legitimate too. I don't, I don't measure my success in life by my net worth or uh, how much money I've made. Um, I've done very well. And I'd say that, that what does success look like to me? It's very much what probably the same thing that you've done as you've moved over to university is I'm at the point where I would like to give back. I would like to give back to this industry who's, who's been treated me so well. Uh, I would like to um, give back any, any way I can intellectually. Um, I've already you know, expanded my philanthropy more than I ever thought I would as a young person. Uh, and then also um, uh, spending, um, I think more time um, uh, really teaching, mentoring, and and the weird thing is, you know, when you reach our age, Mary Beth, you you realize that this mentoring thing, um, you know, is just such a false uh, framework because uh, people in their 60s or or 70s talking to the people in their 20s and 30s, where's the learning going on there? <laughs> it's like 90% yeah. the 20s and 30s teaching us about how it works that their lives are so much better organized, you know, with their, <laughs> their app world and that it, it works. I, I'm not being judgmental on it. I, you know, it's easy to, easy to, to think about, well, gosh, um, I, I don't organize my life that way, but I look at my 20 and 30 something kids and they, they're, they're right on top of their lives and better organized than I was at their age on a whole variety of things. Mm -hmm. I would say technology has a lot to do with it, whether mm -hmm. it's travel, whether it's plans, whether it's organizing, whether it's calendars. I mean, what did you and I used to carry around these big old date books? Remember those things? And we'd write oh, scribbles yeah. of paper and then lose them. And this generation, you know, if they want to, can be much better organized and have at their fingertips so much more information and uh, connections and, and, and being with people through text messaging or, or looking for ideas that, um, that, that you and I can, can only look at and admire. So I guess what, what, um, what I'm thinking about is I, as I um, think about how much more uh, I wanna stay engaged with the industry and as I contemplate what I'll do next in my next act is um, I would love to be in an environment where I can learn and where maybe if I've got something to offer um, somebody who's just coming in, in, into the industry that I can give back. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. I think you'll always be learning. And, and I'm constantly impressed by my students because they are, well, they're so smart. They're very patient. You know, almost every class they say, you know, when, when I teach online MB, you're on mute, you know, and they help me, they walk me through it. You, would, you experienced my tech challenges earlier today. <laughs> um, and they're also just very, they're very kind, you know, and have a sense of balance. I think that perhaps I lacked when I was coming out of undergrad or coming out of with my MBA, I was ready to go conquer the world. But I think they really realized that, you know, the only assets that we really have are time and money. And none of us know how much time we have. And so I, I, I'm just, I'm always impressed with my students and, and how wise they are at such a young age. That's great. You must have some great yeah. students there. That's, that's yeah. wonderful to hear. Yeah, well, you know I do. You came and spoke to them. So thank you for that. Um, so having set you up like that, what advice do you have for my great students? 
I I don't think uh, uh, I'm I'm qualified to be giving advice um, to people I don't know, <laughs> and so um, it's very it's a bit like you were asking. You know, this is this is how researchers are frustrating to work with. You asked me my favorite city, and I danced around it. You asked me about risk, and I gave you a very uh -huh, complicated uh -huh. answer. So I think I think you know, my, economists my, and attorneys, <laughs> right? The answer right. for both is always well, it depends. <laughs> so. Right. Or, or I would, I would, yeah. Not only does it does it depend, but um, but I can't presume to to know uh, what 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 a student uh, student would make a student happy. But I think this idea of pursuing happiness or fulfillment uh, or meaningful work um, are very useful ways of framing it, as opposed to who's going to pay me the most or where can I, you know, maximize my my first year salary and pay back my student loans the fastest. Um, I understand why somebody would feel the need to do that. I'm related to a bunch of people who feel mm -hmm. who, who feel like that has to be a priority, and I I totally understand that, uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss it. But um, I think you and I are both in the position of knowing that that when um, when 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 making major career or life decisions, we've probably both of us have learned. That the people you're working with matter much, much more than the salaries you're earning, and or the bonuses you're getting. Both matter, and the people you're working with, if they're not, you know, compensating you fairly or they're not treating you uh, uh, in a fair way, you'll know it. You'll 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 go. Why am I? Why am I here? So, mm -hmm. as 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 students start to look at their jobs, I uh, choices, and I think they will have many. I I know it's a tough time. But also with at least our asset class, we have huge labor shortages and huge skill shortages in areas like technology, uh, international experience, language skills, foreign language skills. All those are in short demand in private equity real estate. I, I, you know, I can mm -hmm. just tell you that. So, so I think that they, all your students will get jobs. And so one of the things that, 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 that probably they'll want to ask themselves is, is are these people that share my values and that I could see myself spending a lot of time with, even if I'm working remotely, I'm going to be spending time with them, um, you know, on Zoom, or they're going to be reviewing my work. And how do I feel about that? And um, how do you know that when you just meet someone is a great question. Some of the gruffest and toughest exteriors can hide a heart of gold that only comes out when you've sort of worked with somebody for a couple of years. So it is true, it's hard to even be a judgment of character uh, just during the interview process. But if you're just are keeping your eyes open for that question of who do I wanna be with, much the same way you would approach relationship building of a social nature, I think people should do more of that in their, in their business lives. Like who do I want to actually spend time with? Who shares my values? Who could I learn from? All of those are different ways of of, of framing the, the question you're asking about, well, where should I go with my career? Yeah, great advice. Thank you. And I have a feeling after this, after this podcast gets out, you're gonna, um, there's gonna be a line at your door, people wanting to work with you. So <laughs> thank you, Jacques. I, um, I appreciate all your time today and your patience. And I just, I always, I always love chatting with you. I could do it for hours longer. Well, you're a great interviewer. I've enjoyed it. The time has gone by. The post-production people are going to chop us up into little bits, I'm sure, because we've rambled so. a lot. But, <laughs> Thanks so uh, much. 
Thank you. Always, always a pleasure and um, all the best to you and your students. Thank you.